you, O God, that it is coming before your throne as that place of grace, as that place of mercy, and described in such a wonderful way in your word that it is a place that we can obtain both in time of need. That opportunity, that entrance into your very presence has been solidified, has been opened up, has been invited by the finished work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is through him that we have peace with God. It is by him that our sins have been washed away by his blood. And it is because of him that we gather here this morning. We've come to worship God. We've come, as the last song told us, we've, we've come to fall before your throne. To prostrate ourselves in such a way of maybe not physically but spiritually bending our hearts low and our spirits low in your presence. Recognizing the awesomeness of who you are. You are the creator and the sustainer of all that there is. You were described as being holy, holy, holy. John writes it best when he says our God is love. But also he reminds us of the words as Jesus met with a woman at the well. That we've come to worship you in spirit and in truth. For we recognize who you are. It's penned for us to contemplate and also to guide our lives for The writer of Hebrews says that without faith, it's impossible to please you. But we must first believe that you are who you are. And then you are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Lord, we seek you this morning. We need your help by the power of your spirit that you have given to us to contemplate and to also release confusion concerning a question that someone has written. A question I'm sure that has been hidden in their hearts and looking for the right opportunity to ask you. And they wrote it on a piece of paper. And they want us, O oh Lord God, to ask you together this question. So we will need your help. The scratches that I have on the paper are minute compared to the power of your spirit and your word. So Lord, I pray that by your spirit, the words that I say would be guided by your thoughts. And I pray, O God, that you would Allow us the privilege to understand as much as we can. Realizing that we're only mortal beings. And trying to figure out eternal questions. 
sometimes leaves, leaves us wanting. We can't accomplish fully what is set out, but I pray, oh God, that you would help us this morning to understand. There are individuals in our congregation, Lord God, who are presently on beds of affliction. Situations of life have gotten hold of them. Situations of the flu and pneumonia. Situations of dizziness. Situations of even as crucial as cancer. Those life situations have infected them in such a way that they can't be here today. And I pray, O God, that by your will and for your glory that you will intervene miraculously in these lives. In the moments of weakness, I pray that you would strengthen them. In their moments of doubt, I pray, O God, that you would comfort them and allow them to sense your very presence. We ask, Lord, that you would raise them up. Raise them up so dynamically, Lord, that it would be confusing to doctors, but yet still it would be praising to you. And I ask, Father, that you would intervene in their lives. We know that they're praying for us as we're praying for them. So bless them, O Lord God. And those who have to have the privilege of ministering to them, May they find strength in you to accomplish that which would bring about a comfort and a joy. We come to your word, Lord, again, and I pray, too, that you would allow us the sense of your presence here this morning. A sense of presence that goes beyond our understanding. But at the same time, it's a sense that we know and understand. May you, O Lord God, guide and direct this service. Put to flight all the forces of darkness who would try to cause us to not hear, to not know, to not understand. We rely on your word that it says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Let us hear this morning. Let us know and understand the very issue that is upon us in this question. And we'll give you all the praise. For without you, we can do nothing. But in you, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, who loves us. So to you be the honor and the glory and the power and the dominion both now and forevermore. And we praise you. Amen. Before we get to the question, I want you to turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 9. I want to read a passage for you. That at the moment as we read it, you're going to be questioning the fact of why are we reading this particular passage. But I trust as we develop and come to some kind of a conclusion of the question that I've not yet shared with you, but I will shortly you will come to understand the power that is in this passage. John's Gospel, chapter 9. 
We're going to read the first 12 verses. John's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. In honor of the word of God, let us stand together as we read, please. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is this, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, Well, he's like him. And he said, I am he. And therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay. And anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. May the Lord add his blessing upon the reading of the word. You may be seated. The question this morning that we're going to attempt to to try to come to some conclusion, the question is this, God, why didn't you destroy Satan before he deceived Adam and Eve since you know the future? Why didn't God destroy the evil one even before he met the first two created beings. We would at least come to some kind of conclusion that he, if he did, we wouldn't be in the condition that we are. Amen? So God, why didn't you do that? Why is it that we still have to struggle with sin? Why is it that we even fall into the tempter's snare? Why do I have cancer? Why 
Why do I need two artificial hips? And why do they hurt some days? Those of you that have had those surgeries, you know what I'm talking about. Why is the world in such a mess that it could have all been taken care of if God, if only you would have destroyed Satan before even the very beginning when God said, let there be light? It's a good question. It's a question that those who call themselves atheists use as fuel to prove that there is no God. For they say, if God is all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-loving, and there's evil in the world, then there cannot be such a one as God. That's the foundation of their argument. But what do the scriptures say? You see, when it comes to questions like this, the scriptures are the only place that we can go. Because in it, we find answers to these questions. But prior to digesting and even dissecting this question, there are five important foundational issues that you must struggle with. They're unrefutable because they are in the Word of God. And you can read them and say, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's your choice, which, by the way, is number five. But the first one is this. This is undisputable. But there's something you must wrestle with and come to a foundational issue in and knowing and understanding as we relate to this question. The first is this. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to God. There are things, there are questions that you have That only God knows the answer to. And he's not going to tell you. But. The verse continues on and said. But those things which are revealed. Belong to us. And to our children. Forever. There are things. That only God knows. And they are reserved for him and him alone. But those things that are revealed are for us and for our children. And the verse concludes, so that we will obey what God has told us to do. If you knew everything that God knows, then God is not God. Amen? You then become God. And that's the problem. Because we want to usurp God in a form and in a fashion that we want him to be. That God may very well not desire to be. 
Is God loving? Yes, he is. Amen. For without his love, none of you would be sitting here. But he's also a God of wrath. And he's holy. And he doesn't take a back seat to anybody. And there are deep things. Deep things in this universe that they're trying to set out satellites. They're trying to collide particles. They're trying everything they can to find out how did all of this come into being. And all they've got to do is turn to Genesis 1-1. I don't know how it works. All I know is that Hebrews 11.6 says, For without faith it's impossible to please him. For we must first believe that he is. He is who he says he is. That's what the Greek meaning is. He is who he says he is. And he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That's the first truth. That there are things that we are not going to get answers for. The second thing is this. That God is absolutely sovereign. In all that he does, in all that he is, and all that he says, he is the king. He is sovereign. Someone wrote it this way. God is absolutely sovereign, but God's sovereignty never functions in a way that human responsibility is curtailed or minimized or even being able to be blamed on something else. The argument goes like this. If God is all-knowing, and he already knows the decisions that I'm going to make, if I make a wrong decision, then it's God's fault. That's what that is saying. No, no. Number three, mankind is held accountable for their actions and their decisions in the midst of God's sovereignty. There's no excuses. The bottom line foundation of that is this, that there will be no one who will be able to look God in the face and say, I never had an opportunity to trust you, so you can't send me to hell. They've made a choice not to trust him. Because Romans chapter 1 refers to the fact that all creation proclaims God. And it shows his beauty and his dignity and even his plan. Number four is this. The scriptures insist 
again and again that God is good in all that he does. Let me give you some verses that you can go and look at them. You jot these down. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. Psalm 25, verse 8. And chapter 9, verse 9. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5. And Revelation 15, verses 3 to 4. Again and again, the scriptures insist that God is good. Let me give you one more. Romans 8, verse 28. All things work together for good to those that trust God. He's good. <laughs> lastly, lastly, it's this. Number five, even though Satan has not yet been destroyed, there is coming a day when he and all his forces of darkness will be destroyed. Let me give you the verse, Revelation 20, verse 10. Though he has not yet been destroyed, but yet according to Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, he's on a leash. And he cannot do what God won't allow him to do. He had to ask permission to go and to work over Job. He had to have permission from God himself to be able to do something to an individual that even God said, have you considered my righteous servant Job? He's on a short leash. Oh, it looks like the leash is getting longer, don't it? But there are parameters and there are boundaries that God has established that even Satan himself cannot cross. And you ought to be thankful. Because ultimately what he wants to do is to destroy all of you. He wants to grind you, sift you. He wants to make you useless in the kingdom of God. But he's got to ask permission before he can touch you. No, he has not yet been destroyed. But I can't help but wonder. When it comes to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. When he is finally going to be corralled. And he is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. I can't wait for heaven's rejoicing. Hmm. <laughs> I can't wait to see that event when the most evil, ugly, divisive individual will finally meet his doom. And that day is coming. That day is coming. But we haven't fully answered the question, have we? 
I've given you five foundational truths that you must hold on to. So how do we deal with life knowing full well that it seems Satan has run amok? The scriptures are interesting in the fact that they don't sugarcoat life at all. They lay it out as it is. Jesus lets you know right up front that to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself and take up a cross. In other words, it isn't going to be easy. You've all found that out some way, somehow, that life isn't easy. It never was intended to be easy. But it was intended to be successful through Jesus Christ. We had the privilege last evening. And that's why I have my glasses on. That's why I have a bottle of water up here. That's why I'm sounding a little hoarse. That we went to uh, Sight and Sound yesterday afternoon and saw the production Jesus. Life wasn't easy for this blind man. He had to beg for his sustenance. He was labeled an outcast because of his blindness. The law determined that some sin must have happened. They even believed that there was a possibility he even sinned in his mother's womb and he came out blind. Thus the question that the disciples asked, did he sin? Or did his parents sin? But you'll notice Jesus' answer. And this sets the stage for what we're going to discuss to answer this question. The disciples asked, did he or his parents sin? And Jesus said, Neither he nor his parents sinned, but this situation was for one purpose and one purpose only, that the glory of God would be seen. Do you realize sometimes people of faith that the sufferings, the trials, The tribulations that you go through, allowed by God, yes, may be for the one purpose and one purpose only that you could associate with this blind man. And it's this. What you're going through, God wants to show his glory through it. Don't forget that. Don't ever forget that even though life is not dealing you a bowl full of bananas, yet God's got something better through it. And he's taking you through it for the purpose 
to give him honor and glory. This messed up everyone around this man. Jesus did something to him. He could have spoke right then and there and say, "Be see, the same one who said, let there be, he could say, you go ahead and see. But he made mud and he put it on his eyes. And then he tested the man's faith and he said, now go wash in a pool. Which gives me the indication that in his journeys of begging, he came across where that pool was. He knew where to go. And he went and he washed his eyes. And he could see. Sometimes our sufferings, our trials, even our temptations, tribulations are for the purpose of developing our faith and who God is. Could God have destroyed Satan at the very beginning? Certainly he could have. But if he did, then how would you even come to know and understand how much God really loves you? For he demonstrated it by sending his only begotten son to die for you. When God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, that meeting must have been a a blessed time. But I kind of wonder if it got old after a while. I kind of wonder, oh, God's here again. Okay, let's go for a walk. What do you got today for us, God? When we get to chapter 3, Eve's looking for something else. She wasn't satisfied with just God, with what he had to say She's looking for something else. And if Satan was destroyed, Jesus wouldn't have had to go to the cross. And then you would have never known how much God really loves you. I'm going to go quickly through three terms that the scriptures use to describe life situations. The first one is sufferings. Why? If God would have destroyed Satan, there wouldn't have been anything as sufferings. Why do we have sufferings? Romans chapter 8. And in verse 18. In that verse it says, that the present sufferings we go through can't even be compared to what awaits us. In other words, our sufferings remind us of our eternal home and what awaits us there. I've never experienced the disease called cancer. My mother did. My stepdad did. 
some of your family members are. And yet, those that know Jesus say this. I can't wait to meet Jesus in this situation. Suffering now can't even be yet compared to what awaits us. Another thing in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, you read those passages, but sufferings develop in us the awareness of a fellowship we have in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But then he talks about and the fellowship of his sufferings. Sometimes the best way to know the power of Jesus and the love that he has for us is the fact that we do go through sufferings because we have fellowship with him. What about trials? What about trials? Why must we have trials? The easy part, at least the, the more uh, modern translation of that word trial would be having tests in school. <laughs> I was on choir tour one year with Lancaster Bible College and I did not take any books. I was focusing in on ministry and singing. Well, I get back. We get back on a Sunday afternoon. The next day we got class. And wouldn't you know, first class at 7.30 in the morning, Earl Osborne says, take out a sheet of paper. We just came back from spring break. What do you do? Give us a test. You know what his test was? Someone tell me, this is this question, someone write for me what the footnote on page 25 has to say. You've got to be kidding me. Don't some of the testings of God seem to be the same thing? God, you got to be kidding me. I didn't sign up for this. I'm looking for rose-colored glasses. You got any of them? No, fresh out. This is life. And we are tested. Why? James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, talks about not only do patience produce, not only do trials produce patience, but trials bring about a maturing of our faith. Jesus tested his disciples. It's amazing. They just got done feeding about 15,000 people with a little boy's lunch. Collected 12 baskets of, of musgos. Those are also known as leftovers. 
All right, boys, get in a boat. We're going to the other side. And what do they do? They forget the assignment they just had, and they're only concerned about one thing. Jesus, do you care about us? Jesus always, boys, take out a sheet of paper. Here's the question. What do you know about the leaven of the Pharisees? First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, under trials. Trials are for the purpose of purifying our faith. James talks about strengthening our faith. Peter talks about purifying our faith. And having it pured so much so that when Jesus comes back, you won't be ashamed. That's what trials do. Yeah, if God would have destroyed Satan, there wouldn't have been any trials. There wouldn't have been any sufferings. And there wouldn't have been any tribulations. I'm not talking about the one that's yet to come. I'm talking about the ones we're going through right now. Tough times. Times that we didn't see coming. They sort of hit us upside the head in the dark. And we wonder, where did this come from? Tribulations. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, Tribulations do one thing, they produce patience. My stepdad, my dad, I call him, used to say, I didn't ask for this. I ain't been asking God for patience. Why do I have these tribulations? You know, the kind of thing where he was a carpenter, very good. He, he'd make a cut. You'd know more, you guys that are into that, you know more about this than I do. I call people when I got to have stuff fixed. He'd make a cut, set a saw down, go do with whatever he just cut, and he'd come back and he couldn't find a saw. Get so frustrated. Sometimes we don't have to ask for patience. God says, you're going to need a little bit. Here comes your tribulation. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4. It says in that passage that tribulations are for the purpose of developing our faith. We got Jimmy telling us faith or our, our trials are for the purpose of maturing our faith. Pete is telling us it's for the purpose of refining our faith. Paul is telling us it's for the purpose of developing our faith. In case you need to lead a Bible study, you might want to jot those down. Those are your three points. Now all you need is a poem and a prayer and you're good to go. But lastly, tribulations in Revelation 2.10. Here's John's take. 
It says tribulations develop our faith so we can stand strong so that we can receive a crown of life. Sufferings, trials, tribulations. If God would have destroyed Satan a long time ago, you wouldn't have had to go through those things. But then you would have never known the loving, sustaining presence and power of Jesus Christ. Have heart, dear people. One day, our arch enemy is going to be destroyed. I can't wait. And I know none of you can either. But until that time, be of great courage, fear not, that even through sufferings, trials, and tribulations, God is developing in you a faith to be able to stand. Let him work in you. You won't regret it. Even in the midst of the darkest of times. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the power and the presence of your word that allows us to minutely understand the very sovereignty that you are. You are the sovereign king. And you have designed and determined to develop in us situations of life in which we become more mature in our faith, more patient in our faith, more developed in our faith, more strong in our faith, that we would be found pleasing at your return. So we would ascribe, as the writer of, he, or writer of Revelation says, even so come, Lord Jesus. But until that day, may all that we say and do be for your honor and for your glory. We praise these things in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.